You're listening to The Tech Talk Show. Hi there, my name is Sue Nelson and for the next hour we're going to be talking about all things tech. I've been joined by my favourite American who now lives in the UK, Russ Shaw. Hello Russ. Hello Sue, nice to be here. Don't know why I said that. Um, and Russ obviously heads up the phenomenal Global Tech Advocates, which is now so big and so many things happening, I don't even know where to start. Exactly. It's hard to keep up. It is hard I'll to keep up. I'll have to quiz up. you later. Yeah, thanks. Um, and we're joined by two lovely people in the studio. As usual, I'm joined by Darhan Cham of AI Build. Welcome, Darhan. Hello, nice you're, to meet you. You're one of our winners of the Tech Talk 22, and we're going to talk about all sorts of stuff, including AI, robotics, and 3D printing. And I'm hoping to learn a lot. That sounds exciting. Yeah, so you're going to be my my guide. And um, I'm also joined by Jacqueline de Rocas. Now, I could tell you what Jacqueline's done, but I don't have enough time uh, because we've only got an hour. But basically, um, well, just go, uh, just Just Google. She's done it all. Basically, yes. Um, Jacqueline's done some amazing things. We're going to talk about those later, but welcome. Thank you very much. And uh, like me, I'm sure you're interested in listening to Darhan and some of the amazing things he's doing. So... Um, first of all, Russ, what have you been up to? Now, obviously, this is going out sort of like mid of uh, February, and we're mm-hmm. recording a couple of weeks early. But uh, you've been off to the House of Lords, have you? I have, Sue. I did a House of Lords Select Committee last week to talk about digital skills, which is great. Um, how are we doing in our secondary schools, colleges, and universities? So that was exciting. And then today, I was up in Birmingham to the National College for High Speed Rail. And digital and digital skills is a key part of it. a college for high-speed rail. There is a college for high-speed rail. It is incredibly impressive. What do they do then? Well, they focus on training people, young people, to get involved with organizations like Crossrail, High-Speed Rail 2, those types of initiatives. It's a very impressive facility. And then uh, after that, I went to the Manufacturing Tech Center in Coventry, which also is very much focused on supporting young people, training young people in terms of tech. I saw lots of great things on the factory floor, great demos, lots of robots um, in terms of how... It's a big car factoring, manufacturing area around there, isn't it? It is. It is. So they do a lot with the automotive industry. They do a lot with the aerospace industry. They're doing a lot of stuff with food. So I talked about you and Food Tech UK to them as they really try and get their head around how manufacturing and food is coming together, some discussions around how... Uh, food companies need to reduce the volume of plastic yeah, over the coming years yeah. and how that's going to be a massive change. So lots of great things I saw today, um, but very much focused on the premise around digital skills, training apprentices, and a lot of optimism for the future. And that's just one day in the life of Ross, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to my world. Yeah, soon. yeah. So, so if we just talk about select committees, I, I have, I've been on select committee, but not in the House of Lords. Mm. Um, can you just explain what a select committee is and what it tries to do? Because you see, you see these things on the telly, but they only have a, they only show you a little snippet when somebody's having a bit of a row yes, about and, something. And thankfully this was not one yeah. of those. But, but they, they do serve quite a good purpose, don't they? They do. And I have to say, I was really impressed with the caliber of questions they were asking. It was myself and two other individuals. The other two folks were more policy people. And I think I was brought in to kind of talk about, well, what's happening at ground level? And the questions they were asking, who was in the room, um, people like Baroness uh, Harding, Dido Harding, who used to run Talk Talk, Baroness Kingsmill, Lord Darling, Alistair Darling, Lord Lamont. Um, and, you know, really thinking through 
questions around T-levels, apprenticeship levies. Are we doing enough to give advice to young people on careers? Lifelong learning came up as an important topic in terms of, yes, let's focus on young people, but what about the 50-somethings and 60-somethings? So it was, it was really good. And the reason for these select committees is, is to literally appraise uh, that group of people of what's going on out there so they don't lose touch and they, they understand some of the initiatives, that they don't then reinvent something that's already happening. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's right. And I think, I think they, they want to be much better informed about you know, how they can influence policy, talk to others, talk to government leaders about what is going on out there. And so this was uh, a number of discussions that they were having that will form the basis of how are we looking at our approach to higher education, further education, and what do we need to think about early on, even before kids yeah. get to that stage. Yeah. So very useful. Very useful. And then the high speed two thing. I mean, mm. I think, uh, so I, my offices are in Ashford, which, yes. which are, you know, on the high speed one, yes. I think. Um, and and uh, I remember getting on there in the trial service when it first started, nobody on it. I had a whole carriage to myself, as now you can't get a seat. Um, and I think people forget we already have a high-speed service, yes. actually. High-speed two is two, because there's one already. There's one already. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really interested to understand, has anybody really looked at high-speed one and, and, and the impact it has literally had on Kent, you know, and how it's changed and, and, and the benefits that have come, but also obviously some of the disadvantages. But but are they learning any lessons from high-speed well, one? I think so. I, I, I sense, you know, High Speed 2 would not be under discussion and, and planning without High Speed 1. I think it's almost a given that High Speed 1 has been very successful. However, given the amount of investment that's going into High Speed 2, um, potential disruption, you know, High Speed Network going through somebody's garden, you know, that tends to politicize the, the debate and, yeah. and topic. So that's part of the challenge. Then we were talking about Crossrail. I mean, Crossrail is the most amazing project. I think it's incredible. It's incredible. Um, how it's not got as much publicity as it should have done, and uh, just to look, uh, in terms of the engineering feats. I know, and, and that's what you know, these folks are so proud of, and and the whole digitalization of what's happening underground. Um, and then there was discussion around Crossrail rail Two, which will be the north south south um, fork of that, and you know that is also being challenged in terms of funding and. One of the people I spoke to said, well, actually, maybe it's a little bit too ambitious and we should just start. I think the original plan was to go from Hackney to Chelsea. And now it's up at St. Albans all the way down, yeah. way south of Wimbledon. So, but I think it's good. It's absolutely vital for London to have that. And we've and got to get away from the car. I mean, we just have. We do. And, you know, as we all know, London is just, it's at capacity. And the population keeps growing, so we have to keep putting the infrastructure. I was in New York last weekend, and the comparison between the London Underground and the New York subway system, there is no comparison. The New York subway system is falling apart. They estimate it will take $100 billion wow. of investment just to get it up to a basic level. And think about what we've done with the London Underground That's over the, the Victorians past for you, see? Yeah. That's Victorians. You know about all about engineering. Yep. So we've we've got we've we've got something to be yeah. proud of, and and more to come. And I think uh, the interesting thing for me is there's there's some comments around uh, the Olympics, um, 2012, um, and and uh, I think there were some disparaging comments from some guy who was running the Olympics in, a, in Atlanta or whatever. And 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 I think what Americans forget sometimes is that if you're doing crossrail or you're organising something, we're talking about a city that is literally thousands of years old. Yes. With the infrastructure underneath the ground, yep. with all all that goes with that. 
Yeah. And therefore it isn't just, you know, we haven't just got a grid system of, of roads or, or new buildings or, or whatever. Yeah. We've got Victorian sewage systems. We've got all sorts of things going on. So, you know, trying to unpick that and then do new projects is really hard. Well, but then there's a thing about from a, an engineering feat to get from Heathrow to Canary Wharf will take roughly 30 minutes. You know, now it, it takes at least an hour, if not longer. But, you know, without that, if you were to drive it, it easily takes an mm. hour and a half to two hours. Two so, days, actually, <laughs> in my experience. On a bad day, yes, exactly. Um, that leads me rather nicely. Um, Jacqueline, you've visited a sewer today, haven't you? <laughs> I have. You, don't, you smell nice, though. Thank you don't you smell anything much. like a sewer. So why, I don't know why we're talking about sewers at the moment. Well, they are technologically advanced. They what, are what? infrastructure. Indeed. So why have you been visiting a sewer? Because I, recent, I recently joined the board of Costane, which is an infrastructure uh, company. And the reason I joined Costain is simply because I think the nation's infrastructure is a problem worth solving. And that leads me to go to site visits like Tideway, which is the sorting out London sewers. So 25 kilometres of new sewage pipe, eight metres wide, um, going down to a depth of 73 metres. I mean, it's an incredible feat yeah. of both engineering, technology and very smart people collaborating with lots of different uh, companies. So, so that in itself is interesting. Last week I was at Crossrail Paddington, which is another Costain site. And it is, again, I mean, behind the scenes, it's an incredible feat of engineering just to figure out how close they are building shafts next to existing Victorian tunnels um, and how they're just making London's infrastructure work so improving what's already there and it's not just the tech but it's the engineering thought that goes behind it so for example the new crossrail trains will go up as they enter a station and down as they exit so that the braking power is less as so you using less energy. Absolutely. Clever. So there's a lot of thought that's mm, gone into it. And I great. love those snippets of information and insight, which just make a massive difference mm. from an engineering perspective, mm. as well as smart tech. Mm -hmm. So anybody that's run a project, you know, and you've got a sort of multi-dimensional project, um, even just at work, that's hard enough. Yes. Like running an event or get married even, actually, say. Yeah. All the things you have to, all you have to, things you have to organise. Can you possibly imagine the things you have to put together to, to, to run a project like that? I mean, exactly. it's, it's almost makes your head explode, actually. Yeah, and that's where the programme management piece is is really a big differentiator. And, and that's where the team uh, coming together makes a big difference in collaboration. Um, and uh, we don't shout enough either in this country, let alone about our tech skills, uh, digital skills, but our engineering skills. We've, we have great engineers in this country. We need more people to go into engineering because you're almost guaranteed to get a job, actually. It's well sought after. Well, you know, just building on that, one of the young people I met uh, this morning, Ibrahim, who is at the National College, um, he looks at HS1, Crossrail, now HS2, and then he's thinking, well, if this is successful, maybe it will go up to Scotland. So he's saying, I've chosen this because I can see having a career in this area for the next 20 or 30 years. And he felt it was absolutely vital to build those skill sets. Absolutely. So it, the, the, the message that this has on the younger generation, not only what you saw, Jacqueline, but you know how that reverberates with younger people as they think about their careers, it's really impactful. It mm -hmm. is. And we've just, um, uh, we're supporting 
uh, a university technical college for 14 to 19 year olds to address just that because you know, it's not just about grads. We take grads as well, but actually there is another part of a diverse local community that can get involved with local projects on a very large scale. So it's really exciting to be able to reach out there and too. We're seeing a lot of investment though and a lot of hype and excitement about driverless cars and trying to work out how the infrastructure is for that. But like, I don't understand why people don't put more of that into the rail system because surely that is a driverless car in a way. What I saw this morning, it's coming. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the, the simulations that they have, it, there's a lot of digitalization that still needs to happen. But my understanding is they're planning to build a network in such a way that actually drivers will have a lot more autonomy in terms of what's ahead of them, the information around them. I did a bit of a, a VR simulation of what that will actually look like from a training point of view. So that evolution from hardcore signaling to digital digitalization of everything through the network, it's going to take many more years. But I had a glimpse of that this morning and what that therefore means as we think about the rail network. To your point, Sue, it's not just going to be about autonomous vehicles on the road. It's going to be about autonomous trains on the railways. Well, but and actually, if you think about it, once you are autonomous, it could be an autonomous bed, autonomous hotel, because frankly, car is just a label from here to there. Actually, whatever you use it for is whatever it's going to be, interestingly. But, you know, you used to see all those things about visions of the future sort of 10 years ago, and then we're not going to travel anywhere because we're all going to do, you know... Well, you were part of it, actually. It was, it was down, partly down to you, Ross. We were going to be in Skyping and all that sort of stuff. People still want to see things. They still want to see each other. They still want to travel. Particularly millennials, I think. We're hearing more and more that people want experiences as opposed to things, mm. which will in surely include travel. So so there's the sort of really, really getting advances in travel and getting somewhere. That's not going away, is it? No, I think there's, there's still that human need and desire for relationships for interface with with other human beings that that doesn't go away i mean you might in a, from a business point of view have less travel time because you can do things more cost effectively via via skype but we as human beings just have that innate need to, to connect with others so i don't see that going away and in fact i know we're going to talk about ai very shortly I actually think certain aspects of human interaction and and the human experience are going to become even more pronounced as AI and robotics starts to take greater hold. You see, I don't really like using Skype, not really, or FaceTime. Is that my age, possibly? Yes. <laughs> Thanks for that. <laughs> I'm not but saying I just, a word. I just find it a little bit, I don't know, just remote and, and yeah. It's different, uh, but mm. it has its place. Of course it has its uses, yes, absolutely, but don't really like it. No, I mean, um, there's nothing like you know meeting mm. and having a hug with yeah. Russ and, yeah. and, you know, and a cup of tea. I mean, the I think thing is, true. I always think somebody's saying something, you know, straight afterwards that you don't see, or they might be gesticulating at you out of camera or something. <laughs> I'm not quite sure whether what you're saying is, you know, the true thing. Trust and transparency, that's where we're headed. <laughs> exactly, hopefully, hopefully. <laughs> um, anyway, um, Jacqueline, I, I know you're, you're, you're part of lots of boards and, you, 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 you know, and lots of companies and all that sort of stuff. I know one real driver for you is, is feeling that the UK needs to seize its position as, as a digital nation of, of significance um, and definitely by sort of leveraging um, these opportunities and skills that are coming on. 
Two questions, really. What's exciting you the most at the moment and what is depressing you the most? So I think the first, let me start with the second question first, which is, um, I'm not sure I get entirely depressed, but there was one thing that I would rant about. It is the lump of labour conversation, which is that people people's narrative around the robots are taking our jobs. Yeah, I'm bored of that. And I'm really I'm, bored of yeah, that. Yeah, <clears throat> as if there is a finite number of jobs which, just for the record, there isn't. And if we, you know, if we go back to the wheel, if we hadn't invented the wheel, we'd, we'd be doing something different again. So, mm. you know, I think in the name of progress, I'd just like to say, let's kill the lump of labour discussion because there Media, are... media love it, though, because it's, it's, a, it's a scaremongering rubbish story. You know. And that's, that's another whole Yeah, and they podcast. need to be more responsible. Yeah, exactly. Um, but what I am excited about is I am excited about the optimism and the way in which a digital nation can really thrive if we all embrace digital. Um, And that right down to citizen services, so the ability to access government and public services online, I think that's really exciting because frankly, the only state we can afford is a smarter state. So that's a good thing in, you know, under the umbrella of austerity. I do actually, having very happily met Darhan earlier, I do think 3D printing is going to make a massive shift into our future. And I specifically think, obviously in construction, we're seeing 3D printing a lot because it's hard to move some of this gear around and easier to print on site. Um, But actually, 3D printing of things like veins and organs and just you know, protecting and um, helping humanity as we move forward. I think that's an extraordinary thing. And I'm very excited about that, along with AI and machine learning, as long as we can get the ethics and regulation right in that area. We had a really interesting programme a couple of weeks ago, and we were talking quite a lot about AI um, and chatbots, you know, underlying that that sort of technology. Um, And I I just came out of it being nothing but optimistic. When again, I think the regulation thing, you know, people thinking that machines are going to talk to machines and then take over the world and we're all going to, they're going to kill us all or something is, 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 ridiculous actually um and i think what what some of the experts we was were saying in the studio is that actually you program you know these things to do it within a particular parameters and that's what they do they're not going to suddenly do something you don't ask them to do no. well um, it's you know, i think it's the issue around sure, unintended consequences absolutely and that's what you need you know is, is not being naive about it and, and and really plan it properly in the, in the first place but, but again the potential for that is astounding yeah i mean fantastic it is and when you even think about small tech it doesn't have to be bleeding edge technology and you know i've used this example before but think about the tap and go card reader technology that we now have on the underground two years ago we wouldn't have waved a credit card around and said tap and go because we would have thought oh my god the criminals are going to just clone my card we would not have done it now if we go through the tube and you hardly break a stride as you go through those barriers. And that has reduced the friction on the tube incredibly. In the summer, you just don't see those tourist queues you used to have. And and it's rare. Now, that's moved into mainstream into the coffee shops. And if someone gets out cash to pay for coffee, everyone's tapping their feet and tutting, hurry saying, up, you're yeah. killing. Hurry up, hurry you know, up, hurry really. <laughs> and so, you know, it, two millimeter shifts in tech applied in smart spaces can make such a massive impact. And I think that's also where technology could make a big difference to a country 
if we embrace the digital mm. um, culture of it. Although having come back from America for three weeks, they're well behind on their payment technology. They need to get a move on because oh, it's desperate. Behind. It's yeah. pathetic. Yes. I, I was shocked when I had to sign for something. Oh, I know. I, I don't think we realise. We don't realise how far ahead we are, yeah, actually. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, can I just uh, go back to something you were saying earlier, which is about accessing government services online and, and how exciting that is. We talk a lot about making sure we've got digital skills for our school children and, and you know, in a diversity sense. What about a, a, a huge raft of people who, who are much older who are really struggling with this technology and will get cash out because they don't really understand how to use a payment card yeah. through no fault of their own? Mm-hmm. How are we going to make sure that big swathe of society is not going to get... Um, more isolated than possibly they are already. Yeah, it's very tricky, isn't it? Because I look at my own parents as an example in their in their uh, late seventies, and they completely missed the keyboard generation. And now, though, my mother with dementia, Alzheimer's, she's got Alexa in the corner. The good thing about Alexa um, is that my mother can ask uh, the time twenty times an hour, and Alexa doesn't get cross. <laughs> Which I think is I really never thought massive. of. That. I'm going to get my mum one of them. It's I just fantastic. didn't realise. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, or what are we having for tea? Yes. <laughs> yes, exactly <laughs> right. Mm. And it's really funny because it does provide some kind of social connection. Now, I'm not saying it replaces us going to visit or caring mm. about them, but it does provide that sort of in betweenness. And you can also use Alexa to turn on Radio 4, you know, and, and order, reorder prescriptions and things like that. So there is a, a part to play for the fringes uh, and and I absolutely am big advocate of inclusion and diversity and we absolutely need to do it not for just the older generation but the less abled absolutely, as well yes, for all sorts of reasons people yeah. can't use technology. I was going to just add in one other example um, there's a, a new organization called the Business Cafe set up by a woman called Penny Power who at some point She's been on the show. Has she? We Great. like so Penny. You, you, yeah. We love Penny. And She's just I think, gone for a really good crowdfunding thing as well. She has. Mm. And so for me, the Business Cafe is another example of how having those types of places on the high street where older people can come in and say, how do I do this on my smartphone? Or how do I get connected? Or, you know, what is this tap and go? And you can come in and get some advice in a nice cafe in a very friendly environment. And I think what she's come up with there is a really nice solution in terms of how do we not decimate our high street, which is a problem, and put in an a useful organization where you can get a great cup of coffee, a great sandwich. But if you're a small business, if you're an older person who's unsure about certain things, that's where you go. Mm-hmm. And I, I really hope she's successful with this model. She's about to trial two concepts. And, um, you know, if that takes hold, that is one of numerous examples that I think people are already starting to think about to address your point. Mm-hmm. I, I do worry about things like HMRC are going to go, you know, completely digital and all that. Well, where does that leave you? Thank you know. They can't, I, do. They, they must they have other things I, in place. They have to have the manual access as mm. well because you cannot isolate large groups of people, as you, as you mentioned. So we'll be, we'll be double tapping for a while, I think, on that yeah. one. Well, as it should be. But uh, um, and, and another thing I know that you're, you're, you're keen on is this sort of diversity in, in workplaces because that really helps us in terms of, of developing technology and digital. And we've got to make sure that we've got in, inputs from all sorts of people to, to, to have the right sorts of answers in technology. Yeah, this country has been built on creativity and innovation from us looking outwards, not looking inwards. And I think that's a really big message, especially as we go into the future where, 
you know, technology talent is the currency of the future. We absolutely need to be embracing of talent from overseas, talent already here, and also diversity right across the board. And that means everything from age, ability, uh, and gender. Uh, and I think you know, we really need to embrace that diverse message. Frankly, diversity means more productive and better business outcomes. And I think you know, one of the interesting stats I've heard is that one woman on the board of a business can reduce the risk of bankruptcy by 20%. And I love that because it's just an indicator of where diversity lives. Women being less risk, you know, inclined yeah, in, in general. Have, we are generalising, of course. Not necessarily risk, but just having the conversation out loud and just mm. asking you know, questions which say maybe there's another way or, you know, just calling it out. I think diversity lives in a different space to, you know, just a group of the same types of people. And I'll give you an example. I was on the board of a business where um, the chairman banged his hand on the table and said, I'm going to demand that the CEO takes a 10% pay cut. And I said, maybe we should invite the CEO in and ask him if he'd heard that the shareholders were revolting, so to speak, Literally. and would he like, to, you know, to do the right thing? And when I asked him that question, he said, absolutely, I've thought about it and I'm going to defer my bonus by 50%. And yeah. you get better outcomes if you are more inclusive and more slightly diverse in your approach. thinking. Yeah, yeah. slightly different approach. Yeah. Um, I'm going to ask you a political question here, which you're probably going to dodge, Russ. But anyway... Brexit looming. Well, I don't know what that means anymore, actually, I have to say. I quite know what it means. Are you still as worried about the digital skills gap as, as you were, I know, a year ago? Or are you feeling more optimistic? No, I'm still worried about it. I mean, there are other aspects of Brexit where I'm, from what I've seen and heard, where I'm feeling more comfortable um, in terms of some of the recent uh, announcements and decisions. But the digital skills gap is still going to grow in size and scale, and the lack of diversity in the sector is still going to be a significant problem. So we have to keep on to Jacqueline's point around immigration. We have to have a fit-for-purpose immigration and visa policy when we come out of the EU. Um, I've met with a lot of people, the Immigration Minister and the Migration Advisory Committee. They're taking a lot of good soundings, but that is still to come. I'm encouraged by a lot of the focus that we've been talking about in terms of investment in homegrown talent and digital skills, you know, the digital skills partnership by the uh, Department for Digital um, Culture, Media and Sport are really good examples. But the growth of the sector is going to be phenomenal. I do see lower skilled jobs going away because of automation and artificial intelligence. And we need to have a fundamental reskilling and retraining of the nation. So people are coming together. But one of the things I worry about is there's always this natural desire to start over again and build something from scratch when there are so many, so many amazing things, amazing on, initiatives and organizations, yeah. you know, and Jacqueline's involved with a number of them, you're involved, that I kind of say, look, let's get behind those because those people already know how to do this. They've been doing it for years. They're really on top of the changes that are happening in the digital space. So I worry. I think regardless of Brexit or not, for me, the, the, the talent issue and the fundamental digital skills piece that sits below that is the biggest issue that we yeah, face. Yeah, definitely. And I think we've got to stop ministers. So I didn't dodge that. No, you didn't. You did pretty well there. Um, and we've got to stop ministers coming along who are new ministers going, I've got an idea because I'm a new minister and I've got to make a bit of a splash. Can we, can we like talk them out of that? 
Well, more, I think, you know, please, you know, I think the more we you can, don't have to answer that because I know it's no, but I think yourself, the more we bring them into the sector and expose them to yeah. things. I mean, I'll give uh, the example of, you know, Matt Hancock promoted from digital minister to culture secretary and, you know, to his but credit, he really knows what he's doing. He's really taken the time to find exactly. out. And he has spent a lot yeah. of time out there talking to all types of organizations. Jacqueline was with him to yeah. launch the Tech Talent Charter back in, in and, November. And he, he's not doing it to, to wave his name in the papers and make a name for himself. He genuinely, my feeling is that he genuinely knows we've got to crack this. Yes, and he wants to understand it and he wants to hear from people in terms of, well, what's behind this and how do we make this more effective? So, mm. you know, he's at one end of the spectrum. And I think when I hear questions like that, I use him and a couple of others to say those are great examples exactly. of politicians, government leaders who really get this. There are examples of those who don't, obviously, sometimes, <laughs> occasionally. Um, but, but, but as you were describing, as Jacqueline describing, wow, there's some dilemmas and things to solve in the next couple of years. Yes. Um, uh, and there's, there's, there's so many people trying so hard to do do quite a lot of stuff out there so yes. that's quite heartening i think um can you just tell me a little bit as well um jacqueline about tech uk because i know you've got some amazing programs in there then we're gonna have a little break hmm. so tech uk is a trade body that represents um the voices of a thousand companies technology companies across the country and we essentially gather those voices together and think about the things that will create conditions for the tech industry to thrive and that goes from talent and skills, which is a really big agenda for us. It goes to the data parity question between us and the rest of the world, specifically Europe at the moment, and of course, cyber and security. So being a safe place to operate mm. uh, is also very important. So those are three big agendas, mainly to do with Brexit. Then there are 20 uh, other groups that wake up in the morning and worry about things like energy, information, um, data. It could be could be anything, GDPR as well. So we have a very broad agenda driven by the membership, and that's really important. It's not government funded. So you facilitate that and, and, and allow a, a place for that to happen. Absolutely. You don't dictate it, you allow it, you allow it yeah. to happen. Yeah. And it's made up of... SMEs, small businesses, as well as the largest uh, companies. And that gives us a really broad and diverse mm. voice. And let's face it, the 66% you know, of jobs in this country are created by small business. We are a nation of corner shops you know, in one way. And I think that's really important to remember because we often just take the cues of the large tech businesses in order to drive and create policy. And it's really important that we think about the small and medium businesses as well when we are creating the play. I couldn't, couldn't pit. agree with you more. Yeah. I, I get I get quite annoyed about the fact that, you know, Shell might say this or BT and that's really important. Well, do you know what? There's four and a half million SMEs out there exactly. with far more employees than those guys and you're not listening to, to, to their particular problems. Yeah. Um, but they're so difficult to reach, I guess, and they're, and they're so diverse. But But, you know, that's the engine. That's the, that's the drivers of, of tech change, actually, as well as, 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 as um, other sectors. Totally. I mean, let's face it, innovation is driven from the fringes. The big companies rarely innovate from they within. They can't. No. They're too big. And, and, you know, you were talking about Matt Hancock earlier, who's really fantastic advocate for tech. But we've also now got Margot James yes. as Minister for Digital. And she was the Minister for Small Business. So she brings that perspective to the DCMS as well. Department for Culture, Media and Sport. And I think that will make a massive difference in championing 
the cause of the small business. Wow, you might make me even feel like politics is a force for good. There you go. (laughs) Change my views there. Um, uh, Just on that note, Russ hates me doing those things. Um, We're just going to have a little break and then we're going to come back and we're going to talk to Darhan. See you in a minute. You've joined us at a very good time. Oh, yeah. Yes. Our savvy software development guys have just qualified for a chunky government cash payout thanks to our new friends from Breakthrough Funding. Yeah. Sorry, that just slipped out. Government handout? No, not a handout, but recognition for our clever thinking. Now it'll be down to you to help us kick it further forward. Leave it to me. Your company could qualify for Innovation Cash too. Find out online now by answering just six qualifying questions at BreakthroughFunding.com. Yeah. So you're back with the Tech Talk show. I've been talking to Jacqueline de Rocas about all sorts of stuff. And of course, uh, Russ Shaw about his views. I like put him on the spot, um, <laughs> make his life difficult. Um, and we're joined by Darhan Cham. Now, you're from Istanbul, aren't you, Darhan? Yes, I'm from Istanbul. Turkey. It's one of my favourite places in the world. Can you, for somebody who hasn't been to Istanbul, do you want to just describe what it's like? It's the most incredible melting pot, isn't it, of cultures? Yeah, well, it's, Istanbul is a very organic city. It's full of different cultures and, and uh, all kinds of people, really. It's, I find it a bit similar to London in, in that sense. Uh, but, uh, of course, there are many different uh, things as well, it, like especially when we are talking about technology. Um, Istanbul is not comparable to where we are now in, in the UK. It's got the most amazing history, though. And if, if nobody's, uh, you know, if you haven't been to Istanbul, just wandering around, even the cathedrals or Topkapi Palace or any of those, it's it's got the most incredible history and and uh, stories actually around the history. Totally. Well, I think uh, I don't appreciate it enough because I'm, I was born there yeah. and, and I, I was living with it. But uh, when I see. Uh, foreign people coming to Turkey and see it for the first time there, they're totally blown away. And you came over here to study for a master's degree? Yes, so I came here to do a master in architecture and urbanism. Um, And so that took me the first two years of my life in London. And what did you think of London? Had you been to London before? Uh, No. No. So you come over from Istanbul and you arrive in London, what, seven years ago now, I think. Um, What what were your thoughts? I mean, because already... Uh, I think London was establishing itself, starting to establish itself in terms of a a place to do business and new, you know, companies and and people starting things up and digital coming along. What what were your impressions from the outside? Did you think you were mad? Yeah, no, well, I I was impressed from the first day by the fact that everyone has something interesting to do. Everyone's running around like crazy in in the city, uh, which is not the case in Istanbul. In Istanbul, we care more about leisure and and going to cafes and and just having a good time. But here, the the professional... Jacqueline's just saying she cares a lot about that, actually. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And so you think we're a bit more sort of focused on... Maybe that's wrong. Maybe that's wrong. We should be relaxing more, perhaps. Maybe. Maybe, maybe. So you were drawn to the energy of it. Yeah, well, I, w- I was attracted by by that uh, the um, energy of the people and search for something, doing, trying to invent something or or trying to do something for the first time. So, so you end up being, um, you know, obviously you're an architect to start with, and then for some reason, which I've yet to work out, you're going to tell me, I hope, um, from going and studying architecture and being an architect, you you've now moved into sort of AI, robotics, and particularly. 3D printing. Just explain your journey. How, how, how did those things interest you? Yeah, well, for some reason. And the reason is simple. So um, 
I studied architecture, I became an architect, and then I worked in some of the best architecture offices in the world, in London. Um, and um, I really liked doing my job, like we were designing beautiful buildings and, and uh, very complex shapes in the computer. And then there's this stage where you freeze the design and you go to uh, a construction company and start talking with engineers how we can actually build this design. And there we, we started getting um, a little bit frustrated because then the engineers tell you, look, this is actually not feasible. We need to change the design. Can we cut this and uh, put a column there and things like that? Um, and then um, we said... Okay. Uh, and why do they do that? Sorry to interrupt. Why do they do that? Are they doing that because it would cost too much to do or they're just saying, well, I don't know how I would achieve that shape? Um, you know, they're just looking at it very pragmatically. Uh, you know, but, but in terms of resources and costs. Yeah, that, that's mainly about the cost and the technology. Like, yeah. how can we actually make make such a complex mold or, or, or what fabrication technology will be used? We don't know. We are asking the construction companies and they're advising us that this is technically not possible. But what you're saying is then, okay, it might not be, technic it might not be technically possible, but we can do it. You just need to think differently. Exactly. So then we came uh, up to this technology called 3D printing, which we find it a bit like magic because 3D <laughs> printing basically takes a digital file and it converts it into a physical product. And uh, what's so nice about it is it doesn't really matter how complex the shape your 3D printing is. It can be the simplest box or a very complex um, organ of a body or, or, or um, a um, three-dimensional structure, which is very hard to make with traditional techniques. Uh, 3D, a 3D printer can uh, make this object just in the same way. So essentially, you have a computer, you design what you would normally design, which which, which is part of your day job. Uh, and then a 3D printer will literally do small, very small layers of plastic or some other material and actually will build that layer by layer exactly as you've described it, as, so to speak, on your computer screen. Exactly. So it looks at the digital file and it deposits material only where it's needed without wasting any uh, material, any raw material. And then what you get is a replication of, of the digital model that you had. In the so there's computer. no tool making involved, which is which is a big expense uh, in manufacturing. Um, and uh, but it's a short run thing. You're not going to you know you're not going to print off thousands because because actually it's probably not. Um, you know, viable uh, financially. Yeah, exactly. So the, that's the paradigm, the, the opposite paradigm of mass manufacturing. Yeah. So we don't need to make thousands of something and store them, but we do things on demand because yeah. uh, that's what... So I understand that principle. I understand using plastic. I've seen people use chocolate, which I get. Um, I don't understand how you can do it in other materials. Is there other things, you know, that you could do, you know, like replace somebody's kidneys or something or you know but what, what other materials can you put through those machines well the material science is moving really fast especially in, in 3d printing area today you can print with materials like metals and glass and concrete foam um, biomaterials so now we are actually printing organic materials like organs of a tissue of a human body and, and things wow. like that so th that's going really really fast um so organs, I can't even get my head around that. So you can actually, we can actually start to print, as you say, organic, organic materials. Russ, say something, I'm gobsmacked. <laughs> I mean, that has fundamental implications, doesn't it? I, I've dismissed 3D printing, I have to admit. Why? Well, because I thought it was a gimmick, actually, mm. and I thought it was too slow. 
and t- and two one off. Yeah, I can see you can use it, you know, for, for for showing off for something or doing something. And I've seen it used in medical appliances where it's where it's a one off. So get that. Yeah. But I just didn't think it would go mainstream. Yes. Because I thought its its uses would be limited. Yes, but building on the point about, for example, metal ops at the manufacturing tech sector, tech center today, and they use three D printing and are printing with metals and different types of polymers. And I saw some really intricate pieces. Uh, they, they, they gave us an example of a chess piece, mm-hmm. uh, the king figure that had all of these intricate weavings that it was done through 3D printing. And you just think, you know... I think our challenge is how do we use that technology, though? I still don't think we've made that leap yet. Well, we, 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 un- we can do 3D well, printing. Yes, but I think, I think in, in very difficult to produce circumstances where human production is either not feasible, too expensive, um, too much room for error, um, you can use 3D printing to get it right. And the point that you made is also about the lack of waste. Mm-hmm. You know, there's very little, if no waste at all. So when you're doing this stuff, there's nothing But it is clean. slow, that's the thing. And I think I can see it being great for prototyping. Um, you know, and gimmicks, make an amazing toy soldier. But, but I'm, I'm still struggling to see, or, or not struggling, but what I think is there's huge opportunities, which, you know, we haven't we haven't really, really looked at yet. Well, but I think if you, maybe from an industrial point of view, if you look at various industrial sectors, you know, we talked about healthcare, if you talk about automobile manufacturing, aerospace, whatever, I think there are going to be many, many applications. You're talking about construction. You know, there's going to be so many facets to this that will may not require thousands and thousands of mass-produced gadgets or, or items, but much more intricate, much more specific to serve a certain purpose. So I think you have to break away from the, the mass production model, the Ford Model Get T concept. Head. Get yeah. it out of your head and come up with a more bespoke, just-in-time manufacturing that can be tailor-made and tailor-designed. I mean, we as a society want things that are individualized or bespoke as much as possible. Mass production served a great use for a very long period of time in a certain industrial revolution. I think the one that we're sitting about to go into now, this fourth industrial revolution, will have this as a backdrop that has to force us to think very differently. Mm. And you are thinking differently uh, with it, aren't you, Darhan? Because actually what you've looked at, not the miniature side, you've actually looked at large scale one-off manufacturing explain it just just give us an example of some of the things you've been working on because that's why we put you in the tech 22 we were stunned by that yeah so um that's true and uh, i was explaining my frustration with with, with the construction yeah. and, and um so we didn't really care about doing small models with the 3d printer we said okay there has to be a better way and and we said 3d printing actually can do it so if if 3d printing is so good then why are we not just 3d printing everything in the world um and the reason is as you mentioned, it, it's a very slow process and it's extremely expensive. Like we cannot afford to 3D print such massive uh, buildings and, and uh, objects. And uh, we really took this as a challenge when we started the company two years ago. We said, okay, the 3D printing process has to become uh, faster, more affordable, and uh, uh, basically it needs to be feasible for applications like the construction uh, applications. So just give us an example of something you have done for construction, because I've seen pictures, so you need to describe it. 
Well, we are quite early stage. So we started two years ago, as I mentioned, and uh, we worked on some pilot projects with some of the leading architects, engineering firms, and, and construction firms. And um, uh, for example, one interesting project we just finished is a um, fashion brand. Uh, they have a store in Regent Street. Uh, so it's called Bottle Top, which is a really good brand. And um, so we 3D printed the entire store, the interior panels of the store. <laughs> Amazing. And yeah. what's so fascinating about the same project is that uh, the material used in that project was uh, all recycled material. So we partner with this company in Netherlands called Reflow. So what they're doing is basically collecting ocean waste and turning into materials that we can 3D print with. So no, that's the, a really good wow. use of plastic, if wow. ever there was. Yeah. So the, in the process of that project, we used 60,000 plastic bottles wow. and made out of a luxury construction out of that. That's amazing. That's incredible. And and do you think, I mean, Jacqueline's uh, sitting on the board at Costain. I mean, do you think that there is going to be a move? I know for health and safety reasons, there's, there's been a lot more of uh, uh, construction companies that are building stuff, you know, on you know it's in, in their own premises and then moving it in situ so there's less construction going on at the actual site do you think there's a real um use for 3d printing and where we can do some of that in somebody's factory and then trans transfer it you know so in my head i'm thinking like 10 years time we build a bridge and just transport in a lorry and I'd, i know that's not that simple but you know actually things that are really big and complicated um through 3d printing I think so. The construction industry is going in that direction as we talk to more and more uh, people from uh, like companies like Costain and other ones. Uh, we see that they're really interested in making things um, like getting parts in the con to the construction site from a factory Ready and just yeah. almost assembling it like Lego blocks so that it can be done very, very fast. Yeah. And, and that is a trend that's not going to go away, is it? And, and, and there's all sorts of there's all sorts of benefits to that um, entirely. But um, is there any other applications for 3D that you're excited about that you'd like to see, or a client would come and just give you loads of money, you could work on it, you know, to, to your heart's desire, anything you wanted? Well, we think of it really like the future of manufacturing, manufacturing of everything, because it just makes too much sense. Like, uh, as opposed to subtractive manufacturing and other methods, uh, you completely automate the process. Uh, you make it super efficient, uh, using very little energy and very little material, zero waste. Um, so it should really ha be happening in, in all kinds of fields. And it's already happening, like automotive, aerospace, um, high high performance products like uh, sneakers and every day we see a new product that's being 3d printed and and it's becoming commercially viable which is the most important very exciting very very exciting. exciting scary at the same time um, i also know that you've been working uh, uh, in your company uh, which is called ai build you're also using artificial intelligent and robotic talent technologies how, how are you integrating that um, to the 3d printing mm -hmm. totally. so that's actually what we are focusing on um, traditionally a 3d printer is like a three-axis machine that is almost like a black box what you do is you upload your design file and and it starts um 3d printing that you, but, you um, can nip off for a sandwich and it all happens well it all happens yeah. but um <laughs> now if we want to improve that process we kind of need to hack into that machine so instead of using um, black box uh, 3d printers we, we decided to work with industrial robotic arms uh, which are much more programmable and they they have six axes so um and then we started creating um, software for, for controlling those robots and then it becomes a question of um, how can we best uh, describe this geometry, the toolpath of the robot, so that it can be printed much, much faster than it would otherwise uh, be. 
Wow. So I'm, I'm envisaging in my head, because I'm quite a visual person, I'm envisaging these, these robots uh, actually then 3D printing themselves, almost like people, <laughs> which would allow you to construct something in much more multi, you know, from multi-dimensions in essence and using different materials possibly. Um, so, so it's not just this, you know, boring Lego, almost thin layers of one thing. You're coming at it from all different directions. Totally. And uh, where artificial intelligence comes in is, is uh, about making the machines a bit more autonomous. So um, they are not blindly executing a instructions from a computer anymore, but they see what's happening. And if there is, um, so for example, what happens quite a lot in 3D printing, uh, people who 3D print would know this very well, is you let a 3D printer to run overnight. So you're expecting that you will get a nice model in the morning. Uh, and then you in the morning you, you find a mess. So uh, something went wrong, <laughs> maybe the, the ma do, material yeah. fall off a little bit and, and then um, a little tiny mistake in, in a print can cause a uh, huge, um, I mean, it can cause the whole print to fail, basically. Um, and this is happening because the machine doesn't know what it's printing and it doesn't know things are not going well. And uh, what we do differently in our company is basically embedding sensors and cameras in, in the um, end effector that we developed so that the robot is actually looking at it, uh, looking at what it's printing all the time. And if there's anything that's not going Picks according to the simulation, it, it wow. corrects its mistakes on the fly. And also, as it's AI, it's learning from it at the same time? It's learning from its uh, past experiences. Well, Jacqueline, we need to make sure guys like um, Zahan are in this, <laughs> in the UK using their amazing brains, don't we? We really do. And this is just you know, a great example of, mm. you know, we need to prepare for a future that's already here. Yeah. And, and we need to make sure that our digital skills and, and the way that we're working allows these types of developments to come through and you're experimenting and, and then they're coming through into, into exactly commercial right. use. And not just for the for this generation, you know, the younger generation coming in, but a, a commitment from us all to lifelong learning because we will only thrive as a nation if we all stay on the learning train and that's got to be something that we commit to ourselves versus wait for someone to tell us to do. Yeah, and and that's the great thing about doing this program. Actually, I've learned so much. I don't know about you, Ross. We have a succession of really incredible, interesting well, people who are doing it. Well, I keep amazing you know, things. We all talk about data is the new oil. Was that the Economist that had that headline a year ago? And I'm I'm listening to Dahan speak and thinking, this is a great example of why data is what's going to make the whole future economy go, hum, drive, grow. You name it. We have to be careful about how we use it. Um, you know, and I think as we look at artificial intelligence and the big tech companies that are out there in terms of the enormous volumes of data that they're playing with, this is going to be a whole new paradigm for us as a society in terms of, you know, how do we think about the big tech companies versus the other large corporates? And that's why the valuations of big tech are so enormous. The use of this, the way you've just described for your company, Tahan, you know, you kind of expand that exponentially and you kind of think a lot of people can make a lot of money on this but there's also a lot of influence behind what sits behind it because it's mm. our individual data and that machine learning capability becomes more and more valuable so that you don't walk in the next morning and there's nothing there on the table it's just a pile of whatever <laughs> yeah. but an actual beautifully produced design that is is real and live you kind of look at that and you kind of think this is really, really substantial. Yeah. So getting the right people, the, the talent behind it, but thinking about what are the future implications for us? 
as a society, as an economy. Mm -hmm. And just taking a look at the UK on the global stage, what does that mean for us? Mm -hmm. Which is why people like you are so critical to be here to help us to, to blend in with the homegrown talent and create those dynamic, innovative businesses that are our future. And we are just, um, for the record, known as a country to have deep skills and making much, much more investment in the AI and machine learning space, which is a joy because that is a a way in which we will thrive as a digital nation. But Jacqueline, the problem with what Diane's doing is the big companies and just not doing it because you know that they, they wouldn't allow somebody like Darhan as an employee to have the space and the time and the money to to to, to go for it yeah. so he's having to create his own company at his own risk that's with right. his own investment to do it because that's where the you know that's where, that's where innovation, innovation lives. is yeah, or it lives yeah. um so so yeah, I think some of the bigger companies are realising they have to fund people like Darhan exactly. now yes. because they know they can't do it internally. Come on in, he needs more funding. Well, but they also, they don't have the right... <laughs> Darhan's got the biggest smile on his face I've ever seen. But yeah. They don't have the right culture. They don't have the right mentality. I mean, you know, I think we've all worked in big corporate environments and, you know, the bureaucracy, the politics, etc., slows down the whole process. Those large businesses that are much more savvy about getting close to companies like yours are, are going to be the real winners here. And yes, they might need to buy you or, you know, bring you in to, to, to help them innovate internally. And there's a lot of examples of that going on out there. Some are more, much more successful than others. And I think that's where we're going to see the winners and losers emerge. How can big corporates embrace entrepreneurs, innovation, and turn it into a win-win? And there are a handful that I think do it well but not many. And we have no, to look at the at FTSE 100, the FTSE 350, and shake a lot of them up and say, what are you doing? How are you embracing this? Because if you don't do it, you won't be around. Not necessarily tomorrow, but I give you five years, 10 years yeah, max, absolutely. you're going to be gone. Yeah, absolutely. And and for me, Russ, that's the point of Global Tech Advocates, because you know, Darhan's saying, you know, in Istanbul, loads of great things going on over there, but actually couldn't really do what he wanted to do until he came over here. But there may be a case where there's a hot spot of some amazing, you know, innovation going on in, I don't know, Paris or, or, or Dubai or, or anywhere. Um, and what we should be doing is galvanizing, galvanizing these types of communities and yes. facilitating that. Not saying, well, London has to be the best place for everything, but, yes. but actually, the point of global tech advocates is 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 helping each of these hotspots attract what they need at the time because this is a global thing. It it's is. not a country thing. I mean, the internet knows no boundaries. And, you know, we talk about Turkey. You know, we have a TLA Turkey group. And when we launched that last October, I met 40 to 50 amazing entrepreneurs who are here, but also British entrepreneurs who are here looking at Turkey as a potential market from an expansion point of view. There's still great talent in Turkey. There's some great Mm. engineering and developer talent. So how do you facilitate that interaction, that cross-border interaction is where I hope global tech advocates can play a role. TLA Russia, another example. Yes. Although obviously we get loads of press about Russia at the moment, which is not not, not particularly helpful. No, and we had Alina on and and, you you understand that, but there's still a lot of great Russian entrepreneurs and Russian talent and putting aside the geopolitical issues, which are big, you know, let's not forget there's amazing talent out there that wants to do and build things, whether they're sitting in Moscow, Istanbul, London, or somewhere else. Mm. And Darhan, a uh, final word from you, because already the programme's only finished. It always goes far too quickly. <laughs> um, your predictions for the future for 3D printing? 
fast forward five years? What, what five years or two years, I think what will happen is the costs will come down. We will start seeing more and more of uh, more applications of uh, 3D printing in different uh, industries. Uh, so we are tackling construction, as I mentioned, but th this is happening in many other fields. And um, well, the key is really about um, supporting innovation and technology in, in general. And um, if any, I mean, Darhan's, what he's doing is fascinating. So if anybody's listening is interested, um, your website, I know, is still under construction, but you've got two company videos. Which I think they have gone live today. Oh, excellent. Yeah, well so have you got those two two videos on your website? Because they're amazing. I'm sure we do. Yeah. Yes. So go on there because it actually explains how their machines work, uh, which is fascinating. Um, and, and one of their installations as well, which is great to watch. So uh, the website is AI Build. www ai-build.com ai-build.com so go and have a look on that and um, thank you very much for joining us Darhan um, Jacqueline Jacqueline Durocas, um any sort of thoughts on the future for you? I'm very excited about the opportunity for this country to become a digital nation of significance I think we are super optimistic in our sector we need to solve the skills opportunity that stands before us. So that's a personal responsibility I'd like to throw out as a challenge to everyone listening that, you know, grab a young person or, or someone and inspire them into technology because this is a brilliant future. And engineering, of course. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And engineering. Science. The, whole, and science. the whole lot. Science, yeah. technology, engineering, maths and get arts, actually. Come yes. on in. Yeah. Get I was going to jump in on that because we tend to think of it around coding, programming, the scientific aspect of it. But, you know, the artistic content, the you know design content, the, the whole element of digital content is really important. So for a lot of people out there, when we say, and I completely agree with Jacqueline, Jacqueline, come into the sector. But you don't just have to be a hardcore no, that techie. Mean, that doesn't mean to say you're a programmer. There's all sorts no, of options. No, there's so many say. different ways yeah, that you yeah, can get involved. Absolutely. And I think it's really exciting. Yeah, and I'm I'm really excited because I think my prediction is it's tech for good. And I'm seeing more of that. Mm. How do we use tech to solve some of our most difficult issues? Which makes me very, very optimistic. So we've come to the end of the programme. Um, Darhan Cham, thank you so much for joining us from AI Build. I just love what you're doing. Thank you very much. Very modest, um, quiet man who's doing amazing things. Um, Jacqueline de Rocas, thank you so much as well. I know you're doing just such an advocate for um, tech. And like me, I, I guess you're saying get in there. Get involved, whatever it is, get, get in, find some way of getting involved. Um, and again, um, thank you to um, Russ Shaw of Global Tech Advocates. If you're listening and you're not a member of Tech London Advocates or any of others, what are you doing? <laughs> get onto the Tech London Advocates website because it's a, it's a great resource and you can get involved Come as much in. or as little as you want. That's right, designed but for very busy people. we've got nearly 6,000. The guessing. London group is over 5,700. The other seven siblings yep. probably collectively have at least two two and a half thousand so we're eight thousand a great support group and um, actually if you're not part of tech uk you should look at that as well yeah, tech absolutely. uk sign .org. up sign up we want you <laughs> see we're so passionate um oh, you've been listening to the tech talk show um please if there's anything you're seeing that's amazing in the tech sector and you think we should feature it on the show get in touch with us via twitter on at tech talk show UK. And if you want to listen to any of our hundreds of podcasts, go to techtalkshow.co.uk. And we've also got links to all the things we've been talking about today. Um, have a good week and we look forward to talking to you next week. Bye now. Bye.